What is up? Welcome, everyone. You're watching Weekends with Anna Kasparian and Kale Brooks, our trusty producer who's stepping in for Nando Vila, who'll be out today and next week. But have no fear. We have an excellent show prepared for you all today. I'm really looking forward to this one. Uh, in our interview section, we will be speaking to Andrew Coburn, who is uh, the Washington editor of Harper's Magazine and has written extensively on U.S. foreign policy, both in uh, his articles and in books that he's published. So I'm really looking forward to that discussion. Kale, how are you doing? What are you looking forward to? I'm doing great. Uh, I wish Nando had told me that he was not going to be on the show uh, sooner than this morning, but um, here I am. Uh, short notice. No, no. I, I I had notice. We have segments prepared. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the Biden infrastructure plan and the you know all of the horrible shenanigans and corruption in Washington. And then I'm hopefully going to try to maybe uh, bring in a little bit of a historical perspective on how in the past people have, working people have gotten out of these situations. So hopefully we have both the the critical take on what's going on and then maybe hopefully some useful perspective on how to get out of this, maybe. Yeah, I love that. I think the historical context is important and uh, I'm looking forward to your decode. Um, you know, there are a lot of terrible things happening, uh, especially when it comes to the budget reconciliation bill, which I'll get to in my decode segment. But what's given me a little bit of positivity or optimism is what we're seeing in regard to the labor activity in the country. So uh, we had covered the uh, threats of workers striking. Uh, you know, we, we had uh, Kaiser Permanente nurses threatening to strike, IATSE workers threatening to strike. Uh, IATSE, of course, is the union representing those in television and film. Um, but the individuals who did end up striking are the John Deere workers. 10,000 of them uh, decided to engage in this strike after they could not uh, secure a contract that they were happy with. Uh, John Deere is making record profits uh, to the tune of, I believe, $6 million in revenue uh, last year. Uh, so it's pretty easy for them to share that wealth with the very people who helped to generate it, which are the workers, uh, but not under this system where they have a fiduciary responsibility to return, um, you know, return investments to uh, their shareholders. So uh, with that said, I wanted to give an update real quick on, first of all, how exciting it is to see workers hold the line, but they're not doing it without support, right? There's protection in place. Uh, and a, a really good example of that is what John Deere did in regard to the workers' health insurance. In order to basically... Uh, make these workers desperate to go back to work, John Deere decided to kick the striking workers off of their health care. But what I was happy to see is, uh, since they're represented by the United Auto Workers, uh, which of course has a strike fund to the tune of $790 million, I believe, the union will be able to pay for the COBRA payments uh, for these striking workers as the strike goes on. And by the way, John Deere uh, has not striked, the workers have not striked since 1986, the year I was born. And so uh, that strike lasted five months. Uh, this is an open-ended strike. Uh, we don't really know how long it's going to last. But what's really fascinating is, is to see how it's really hitting John Deere where it hurts, right? Um, so there's this one division of John Deere, it's known as the money maker, where the equipment that they make, the machinery that they make, uh, sells for about $8,000 uh, a piece. I'm sorry, $800,000 a piece. Mm. And so uh, 
they're already behind schedule considerably. Um, and this was in the beginning of the strike. So uh, John Deere is in a desperate situation. They think that they can, um, you know, take the health insurance benefits away from the workers and make them desperate enough to end the strike. But since the workers have that added protection of the uh, union representation and that strike fund that comes along with it, uh, hopefully it'll be able to sustain them longer as they hold the line. Yeah. No, I mean, it's a phenomenal development. And the fact that people have been pummeled for so long, so many decades, but especially just like in the last two years in COVID, having to go through so much in the workplace, out of the workplace. And so, you know, dealing with sickness in the workplace or not, uh, it's so it's phenomenal to see people fighting back and, you know, people who are, you know, who have any, (laughs) any morality or any like decency, like, you should try to do something to help these, these workers. Like there's, there's efforts that, uh, you know, like the most minimum, like when you, if you're posting on social media or something in solidarity that consider that like the minimum, like the, obviously what they're going to need is financial resources because as uh, economic resources, as, um, and as mentioned, as she mentioned, like the last strike took over five months that that's probably more likely the case in a lot of these major strike actions that, it's not going to be, you know, one and done. In fact, you know, when when you do see these like minor strikes that we've been that we are more accustomed to in the last few decades, these like, oh, we're going on strike for a day or two. It's like it's it's all about a political statement and it's not a real fight. In fact, it kind of just speaks to the weakness of the labor movement. Like the mm-hmm. when it's a real fight, it's it's gonna be protracted because the boss, like the fact that they have made all this profit in this time, the fact that they have been hoarding it means that they have a lot of cash to burn through, which means that the workers are probably going to be out on strike for a longer period of time. So whatever we can do to help that effort, we should. Um, And the most likely outcome, unfortunately, has to be said, is that, like, you know, this is probably, hopefully it ends in victory, but, like, the more likely outcome is that it doesn't. And so we have to keep these things in mind that, like, this is, if, you know, hopefully this is the more optimistic view that hopefully we're at the beginning of something, something that's percolating across the country of, of workers standing up and fighting back and, uh, and doing it through, not through individual measures, not through, you know, um, leaning into nationalism or something, but go through collective action, through unions, through solidarity with their coworkers uh, and non-coworkers, people who are fellow working people um, that, this is hopefully the beginning of something. And so we have to, you know, keep that in mind that, uh, you know, we support when we can, we should. Um, and if it ends up in a loss, you know, we just have to understand the the massive uh, fight we're in, the, the power of the corporations that we're up against. Absolutely. And what also makes me optimistic was uh, the fact that, you know, you had this effort to unionize warehouse workers in Bessemer, Alabama, as we know, uh, that effort did not succeed. And there was some concern that that would discourage workers, but it, it didn't It didn't discourage workers. Uh, we're still seeing, honestly, labor activity that it's certainly not unprecedented. Like we had a lot of labor activity early on in this country's like history, early on in, you know, uh, like during the New Deal, lead up to the New Deal. Uh, but then everything just kind of started to die down. Uh, that wasn't an accident, you know, as as Nando did in a decode segment months and months ago. You know, you had uh, 
actual policies being passed, like the Taft-Hartley Act uh, that very specifically wanted to undermine uh, unions Mm -hmm. and create division within the workforce and all of that. Uh, But now you're seeing people with a level of class consciousness that didn't really exist in the 90s, I feel like, or if it did, it was was really minimalized um, or minimized. And so... I'm glad that people aren't discouraged. And I think it's because they don't really have the um, luxury of being discouraged, right? I think a lot of people are realizing unless we fight back, unless we uh, find ways to organize in other contexts, you know, obviously John Deere is unionized, but unless we find ways to kind of shift the power dynamic in the workplace, things are just going to continue devolving for the worker. And that's certainly true with technology, um, advancing more and more automation. Um, I didn't know that John Deere actually had a a moratorium on uh, closures, factory closures. And so that was one of the things that uh, John Deere executives wanted to do away with in one of their uh, contract offers. And the workers are like, no, uh, we want to maintain that moratorium. And they realized the importance of that. That means uh, maintaining jobs (laughs) for themselves and for their fellow uh, coworkers. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's the, again, you just have to keep in mind, I mean, like the way that the system as a whole, capitalism as a whole, it organizes the bosses and it disorganizes the workers. The fact that it's so much easier for uh, a boss to say, I'm going to close down the plant for a week and you can't come in for a week. They can shut you out for a week. That week they're not going to, capitalists don't want to do that, but like they can probably withstand a week of no profits. Whereas a week of no wages for a worker is so much harder to go through uh, because capital is already organized and collectivized into like the firm, into the factory. And, and so the boss has all of these assets that go into that process. And like the fact that they can, like you're saying, I mean, they could typically, a bo- you know, a, a boss could, if they have multiple locations, shut down one location, move it somewhere else that's easy for them because, you know, it's just, they're just moving property. They're just moving, Mm -hmm. you know um, you know, it's not typically isn't what they want to do. There's usually circumstances that uh, enable that process to happen, but workers can't just as easily get up and move to the, you know, another state over where the the job is going um, because they actually have a life. They actually have, family and friends and like, and they have limitations of like how they can break into a new social setting and to, you know, it's not easy to move into a new place, into a new part of the country, a new part of the world. So this is, you know, the fact that, you know, basically like what constitutes workers is like a part of us as people, the fact that we have to sell our ability to work versus the fact that a capitalist just owns a bunch of stuff that is profitable that that distinction, although it might be maybe it's kind of I'm being very general, but like that is fundamentally, you know, like why capitalists will have the power they have and workers, you know, relatively don't have as much power. But ultimately, I mean, this is like the only way to fight back is through collective action that it's that in order to to um, to push for their interests, workers have to organize collectively. That's the only way that you can meet the same level of power that the boss has. And one more thought, I guess, just the, because I've sometimes, or I've seen a little bit here already. I mean, you see this every so often people's reaction to seeing a little bit of strike activity uh, or to, to workers pushing back is to immediately jump to like, okay, general strike. Okay. This is good. Let's keep going. Make it bigger. 
I'm happy you brought that up. So can you talk about that? Because I think, first of all, if if there's anyone who's really well read on that issue, it, it would be you. Um, and I was trying to talk about that and explain why it's not so easy on TYT. I believe it was this week. But can you discuss that? Because I think that there's like this tendency to think that you just call a general strike. And since the majority of Americans, uh, the majority of workers agree on how the system is messed up, they're just going to do it. Um, but it's far more complicated than that. And the groundwork uh, requires quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I mean, the first sobering thing is just the fact that in this country, in the private sector, it's only 6% of the workforce that's actually unionized. Yep. And so everything we're seeing in the news right now about Striketober these are all union workers, meaning it's like a sliver of 6% of the population, of the working population, rather. Uh, and that's it, that doesn't diminish Striketober. That doesn't diminish what the workers are doing. Again, obviously, you know, you should be doing what you can to support these efforts because we want them to win. Uh, but it's like important to just keep in mind that this is, you know, the fact that it's, you know, only John Deere... Uh, out of like all of the kind of the the um, bubbling work actions, the John Deere were the one, or the John Deere workers were the ones who actually went on strike. Um, yeah. You know, and that a lot of other workers are you know, are going to say, "I would really rather not if we don't have to." That if, like we can come to an agreement, that would be preferable, because while striking is perhaps the most powerful weapon workers have, it inevitably is also hurtful to them in the meantime, because they in fact are in capital. Like where there's a society around you, like it's you, in fact, the, the rules of capitalism say that you have to make your living on the market, that you have to buy and sell on the market. And if you don't have income for the time that you're striking, you cannot buy and sell on the market that like, that's the, like, that's the problem. It's not so easy to just like say, yeah, you know, screw this whole thing. I'm, I'm going to just like, you know, I'm just not going to go to work and like force the boss to, you know, to give me what I want. It's like, there's so many preconditions that we, mm-hmm. I talked about this a little bit last week, but there's so many preconditions that have to be met for workers to successfully organize and then go on strike. And then on top of that, actually win. like, there's, there's a lot of, you know, the history of the labor movement in this country and around the world is that like, especially in neoliberalism, you know, workers are going to lose more than they win, but like, that's just, that's also been historically the case as well that like, yeah, the, the periods where workers win are exceptional and we know them like in this country, it's the new deal. Um, in Europe, it's, it starts a little bit earlier, extends a little bit later, but you know, it's maybe like 50 years, you know, we get like 2030 in the U S like Europe gets like maybe 50. So that's, that's the exception. And the point is to try to recreate those situations but you can't just will them into existence. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not that the fact that workers won in the past was because they just wanted it enough. It was um, they did hard organizing that the conditions were, were right for, for when it happened. Um, and some of it is just kind of luck that like, you know, you just, sometimes you win and sometimes someone, you know, the boss says, yeah, you know, fine, I'll concede to your demands. And sometimes the boss says, no, nah, I'm going to hold out another week. And maybe that's what, kills the the strike so it's yeah there's just so many factors involved here and and again speaks to the fact that like if any of this is resonating with you you should be doing what you can to support john deere workers right now 
Yeah, there there are people, you know, sending them obviously like various resources, whether it's boxes of pizza, firewood, uh, sending the union, United Auto Workers, uh, money to help with their strike fund. So there are things you can do, even if you don't live in a state uh, that has John Deere workers striking in it. Um, so I highly recommend uh, looking into that and and supporting where you can. Uh, they can use all the support they can get. Um all right. Well, why don't we move forward uh, before we get to our decodes today? Why don't we give a little shout out to our partner, Verso? That's right. Uh, and if you can't tell, I am both producing and co-hosting. So apologies for any of the weird hiccups. But uh, it's October. Typically, we would have the Verso Book Club, but uh, we don't this month, if you haven't already figured that out. So instead, we're just reading off a couple books that I think uh, you should check out from Verso. These are some of the new titles that uh, are, are worth looking at. So the first one is Who Owns the Wind? Climate Crisis and the Hope of Renewable Energy by David McDermott Hughes, which argues for transforming renewable power into a common resource. Naomi Klein says David Hughes is doing some of the most innovative thinking and writing about energy democracy in the world. Uh, the next book, actually, uh, we're going to be talking with the author in a moment, is uh, The Spoils of War, Power, Profit, and the American War Machine by Washington editor of Harper's Magazine, Andrew Coburn. Based on years of wide-ranging wide research, Coburn lays bare the ugly realities of the largest military machine in history. Stay tuned for our conversation with Andrew. And finally, uh, Islamophobia and the Politics of Empire, 20 Years After 9-11 by Deepa Kumar critically acclaimed analysis of anti-Muslim racism from the 16th to the 21st centuries with a new forward by Nadine Nadeber. All right. Sorry. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, let's get to our decode segment. Um, I I really like the way that the show um, like has two segments that really mesh together well. Um, So I'm going to start off with um, an update on what's taking place with the reconciliation bill, but more importantly, Something that I've noticed in regard to the way the media covers the negotiations regarding that bill and how frustrating it is that most people aren't getting the full story. So let's get to it. The most frustrating aspect of the corporate media's coverage of the negotiations surrounding the so-called budget reconciliation bill, that's Biden's Build Back Better agenda, is that they treat everyone involved as if they're all, you know, honest actors looking to do what they consider to be the right thing. Now, Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema have notoriously become obstacles to the passage of that bill. And this week, Biden did go out of his way to try to appease Joe Manchin in ways that are incredibly frustrating and honestly predictable. So Biden informed House progressives that the final bill to expand the social safety net is expanded uh, is expected to drop tuition-free community college. Moreover, he indicated that the child tax credit, a key democratic priority, would likely be extended for just one additional year. Remember, he was promising to make it permanent, and that's much shorter than what many in their party wanted. The child tax credit will also be means tested, keeping with what Manchin had wanted. All right. So again, let me just emphasize the fact that the way the budget reconciliation bill was proposed wasn't even radical by any stretch of the imagination. For instance, the child tax credit was supposed to lift about 50% of children living in poverty out of poverty. 
I would argue that a far better solution would be to do anything and everything in our power to lift all children out of poverty. But for people like Joe Manchin, lifting 50% out of poverty, that's a little too, uh, too extreme. And so uh, unfortunately, Biden decided to uh, concede that portion of the legislation, along with other things. Uh, Biden also indicated to the group of progressives that they would reduce the proposed funding for so-called home care for the elderly and disabled, because, you know, we're just spending too much money on that group, down to less than $250 billion. Democrats had wanted to keep the funding at $400 billion. The president told progressive lawmakers that negotiators are also weighing reducing the duration of paid leave benefits outlined in the package to just four weeks down from the proposed 12 weeks. So honestly, the most important And also popular provisions in the Build Back Better agenda are now being either completely scrapped or they're being cut down in regard to funding. And the news was a tremendous blow to progressives or anyone who actually understands the undeniable necessity for a more robust version of this legislation. But we need to actually go further than refusing to take Manchin or Cinema's reasons for opposing the bill at face value. They're not honest actors, but they are rational actors because what they're doing serves their own self-interest. And really what I'm asking for is taking a step back and looking at this system, right? The system of incentives and disincentives and how by understanding that system, you can predict that negotiations for this type of legislation are going to play out the way that they have played out. Um, So let's talk about what I'm specifically referring to. Now, while legalized bribery through the process of campaign donations is certainly a problem, another massive issue is how lawmakers are personally invested in businesses that want to maximize their profits by keeping taxes low. And I'm sure most of you who have been following this story have noticed that uh, both Senator Joe Manchin and Senator Kirsten Sinema Uh, have pushed back against the notion of increasing corporate taxes. And sure enough, this week, Joe Biden made it clear that it's very unlikely that the budget reconciliation bill would have the pay for in the form of higher corporate taxes. And uh, there's another issue that's worth mentioning. And I've mentioned it on this show before. I mention it on a regular basis because I do find it to be incredibly important. And it's part of that system that essentially incentivizes these elected officials to work against the best interests of their own constituents. And what I'm talking about here is the stock portfolios that these members of Congress have. They are personally invested in individual stocks, stocks for corporations that want to maximize their profits and want to uh, provide a return on investment to their shareholders some of whom are members of Congress, right? And the way you maximize profits is you screw over your workers, uh, exploit labor uh, and and extract as much labor for the cheapest possible price, keep taxes incredibly low so you can pay dividends to shareholders. And uh, when you look at the stock portfolios of various members of Congress, including Democrats like Nancy Pelosi in the House, for instance, you'll notice that they're doing real well. In fact, they're doing so well that they're beating the market. And at the same time, uh, you have uh, various individuals who are uh, keeping track 
of this uh, market activity and the financial disclosures that members of Congress are putting out and just essentially copycatting. Like they decide to copycat what members of Congress are doing because they realize, well, these people have uh, legislative abilities. They get to govern and make decisions about these companies that impact the profits that these companies can make. And so why don't we just follow what they're doing and make some money? In fact, there are TikTokers doing that and bragging about it on the social media platform. So CEO Watchlist on TikTok um, gave a shout out to Pelosi, um, but he doesn't really understand how there's actual insider trading happening with members of Congress uh, because of the fact that they have access to undisclosed information through the form of these classified briefings. And by the way, Nancy Pelosi is the Speaker of the House. She gets to decide what type of legislation gets brought to the floor for a vote. So uh, she's not going to work against her own personal investments, right? Uh, but, you know, that particular TikToker seemed to be a little oblivious about that. Uh, but I also noticed that there are other TikTokers who are doing similar things like uh, Iris app. Let's, let's watch this video and see uh, what the, you know, advice is. And would you look at that? Literally clockwork. The U.S. government has an agreement to purchase a supercomputer from who else? NVIDIA. Yep, NVIDIA. The one, yep. The one that Nancy bought back on 7-23-21 in that tweet. The news comes out literally yesterday, like 8-24-21. She knew. And you would have known if you followed her portfolio on Iris. Come do it. I have a group chat going where we're kind of going over how to use the app and whatnot. Comment below if you want to be added to the group chat and I'll let you in. So that's a TikToker named Chris Josephs. And, uh, you know, he is doing what I think makes a lot of sense if you're just looking to invest in the stock market and make money. Uh, he's just following the stock activity or the the, the behavior that he's noticing from um, some significant members of Congress like Nancy Pelosi. In fact, NPR reported that in the past year and a half, Josephs has been tracking or I'm sorry, has been taking advantage of a law called the Stock Act. More on that in just a minute, which requires lawmakers to disclose stock trades and those of their spouses within 45 days. He is personally investing when he sees which stocks are picked. Now, um, he also says this. Uh, I'm at a point where if you can't beat them, join them. I typically do buy the next one she does. I'm going to buy. We don't want this to be a left versus right thing. We don't really care. We just want to make money. Now, here at Jacobin, that is not what the priority is, right? The, the whole point of this show is to talk about systems of power, uh, how we can uh, create a better society. So if you're just looking for a way to maximize your own profits, this isn't the show for you. However, I do think that this story is a telling one. If you wanted to evaluate the extent of Congress's conflicts of interest, all you'd have to do is take a look at how much money these members of Congress, members of the House and the Senate, um, have invested in the market. So far this year, Senate and House members have filed more than 4,000 financial trading disclosures with at least $315 million of stocks and bonds bought or sold. And look, while gridlock is a notorious characteristic of Congress, uh, the fact of the matter is uh, when it comes to passing legislation that helps to enrich themselves or their own staffers, there seems to be a lot of agreement. I take you to two, uh, 2013 when Congress actually passed something related to the Stock Act that allowed for them to essentially loosen some of the restrictions for their staffers and their own, um, you know, 
stock trading activity. Let's watch. Everybody's losing faith in the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, and all the different branches. So what did they do? They repealed a major part of the Stock Act at the end of last week when no one was paying attention. It was supposed to apply to the 28,000 staffers as well. So the staffers are incredibly important, and whether they have stock information is important. And so now, of course, they exempted them. They repealed it in the Senate in 10 seconds. In the House, it took a whole 14 seconds. They were unanimous. And by the way, here's the final icing on the cake. What was their official excuse for repealing this incredibly important check to make sure that they're not cheating and that they're not getting any extra advantages in Washington? Quote, they claimed it was an unwarranted risk to national security. You could just cite national security for doing anything if you're a member of Congress, right? Our staffers need to be able to uh, buy and sell stocks without having to disclose it. Remember, staffers are incredibly important to the legislative process. They're the ones who advise uh, these lawmakers on the legislation, what they should support, what they shouldn't support. Uh, Their stock market activity is incredibly important. And of course, uh, you now have this loosening of the regulations, the Stock Act in 2013, which essentially uh, provides an opening for these staffers to buy and share or buy and sell stocks without having to disclose it, right? And all they needed to do was uh, cite national security for the reason for doing that or as the reason for doing that. Now, remember, the Stock Act basically just forces members of Congress to disclose what their stock activity is. Um, And it doesn't ban them from making any questionable trades. So some in the financial industry have just decided to take advantage of how screwed up our system really is. At least one financial services consultant who has a name I cannot pronounce is planning to set up a financial instrument that automatically tracks congressional stock picks because in his view, lawmakers are, quote, probably privy to more information than just the general public. And guess what? He is absolutely right about that. In fact, there have been studies looking at the uh, performance of the stock portfolios that members of Congress have uh, compared to or relative to the stock market in general. In fact, here's a CNBC explainer on that. In March 2020, news spread that four U.S. senators, including Burr, were being investigated for insider trading. Ahead of the drastic escalations in this pandemic, while still reassuring citizens that the U.S. was prepared. Senator Burr vehemently denies the allegations against him. But here's what we know. On January 24th, the Senate's Health Committee held a briefing with CDC Director Robert Redfield and White House Pandemic Advisor Dr. Anthony Fauci, according to The Washington Post. About two weeks later, Burr and Tennessee Senator Lamar Alexander wrote a Fox News editorial that the U.S. was better prepared than ever to deal with a pandemic like the coronavirus. Less than a week later, the Dow set an all-time record, hitting just over 29,551 points. On February 13th, Burr sold between $630,000 and $1.7 million worth of investments. He did it in 33 separate transactions, and he didn't buy a single share. So that's a very specific example of uh, really bad 
behavior in Congress, but specifically bad behavior that helped these members of Congress to enrich themselves. They had access to uh, classified information at the time. Uh, They had this closed door briefing. And immediately after that briefing was over, uh, various members of the Senate decided to uh, sell stocks that would be harmed by the pandemic while buying certain uh, stocks that would do well during the pandemic, you know, things like Zoom, for instance, things that would require uh, working from home. So uh, that's, again, a specific example. But this has been going on for a long, long time. The study Abnormal Returns from the Common Stock Investments of Members of the U.S. House of Representatives found that House members earn statistically significant positive abnormal returns outperforming the market by six percentage points. In fact, uh, senators tend to do even better, the authors say, citing their own earlier research from 2004. Senate portfolios show some of the highest excess returns ever recorded over a long period of time, significantly outperforming even hedge fund managers with gains that are both economically large and statistically significant. Because of course... Again, not only do they have access to information that we as Americans do not have access to, they also get to make decisions on legislation. And when you're talking about congressional leadership, they get to make decisions on whether or not legislation is even considered. To give you more, now consider uh, lawmakers like Joe Manchin, who personally profit off of the fossil fuel industry. Remember, the budget reconciliation bill is supposed to be the most robust attempt to respond to the climate emergency. But Joe Manchin doesn't want to respond to the climate emergency because that would mean harming himself financially. What do I mean by that? Well, for instance, uh, Manchin just last year alone made $500 million or nearly $500 million off of the coal industry. Uh, through a company called Enersystems, a company he founded and then passed over to his son, but he's clearly still invested in. According to his most recent financial disclosure, Manchin gained $492,000 last year, to be exact, due to his non-public shares in a coal company called Enersystems, which records show is a contractor for a power plant in the state's north that burns waste coal. Meanwhile, Manchin's 2020 income for being a senator was $174,000. $174,000 is quite a bit of money, but obviously that's far less than the money that he's making from the coal industry. And uh, there was a great piece just this week, I believe, uh, by the Washington Post that looked into the number of jobs in West Virginia related to the coal industry. Because what we hear over and over and over again from Manchin is that his opposition to the reconciliation bill and the climate provisions included in it is that it's going to harm his own constituents. He's worried about losing jobs in his state. But the fact of the matter is, uh, through this reporting, that only 3% of jobs in West Virginia are related to the coal industry. And the people of West Virginia are unfortunately now forced to pay far more in their energy bills because as the rest of the country is moving away from coal, they've decided, or the lawmakers in that state have decided to double down on coal. And that has uh, led to an uptick in prices, which definitely enriches and benefits Joe Manchin and only harms the constituents in his state. Now, uh, Biden hasn't made climate-related concessions to Manchin just yet. 
which I find a little funny because the whole point that he, the whole point of making all the concessions that I mentioned earlier in this segment was to get Manchin on board to the reconciliation bill. Those were concessions that Manchin is unmoved by. What he would be moved by is doing away with the climate-related uh, provisions because those are the very provisions that hurt his bottom line. But it's not just Congress that we should be concerned about because this is a system that has uh, been set up to benefit elites in, in all parts of our government, uh, including the judicial branch. So let's talk about that a little bit. District judges are supposed to hand down rulings based on the law and based on our constitution and our constitutional rights, which is why it's a problem that literally dozens of them failed to recuse themselves in cases involving companies and corporations that they're personally invested in. And to be sure, they're allowed to be personally invested in it. And that's part of the problem. Now, the Wall Street Journal of all places found that judges have improperly failed to disqualify themselves from 685 court cases around the nation since 2010. The jurists were appointed by nearly every president from Lyndon Johnson to Donald Trump. About two thirds of federal district judges disclosed holdings of individual stocks and nearly one of every five who did heard at least one case involving those companies, okay, or those stocks. Now, unsurprisingly, what happens if they're handing down rulings regarding companies that they're personally invested in? Well, let's give you the results. When judges participated in such cases, about two-thirds of their rulings on motions that were contested came down Oh, wow, look at that. In favor of their or their family's financial interests. Alerted to the violations, 56 of the judges have directed court clerks to notify parties in 329 lawsuits that they should have recused themselves. And by the way, that is what the law entails. They they must recuse themselves. They fail to do so. That means new judges might be assigned potentially upending rulings. Think about what a waste of resources, what a waste of time that was, that these judges, A, have the ability to be invested in individual stocks and then fail to recuse themselves. And later on, I'll explain to you how this is not new. This has been going on for decades. Again, nothing bars judges from owning stocks, but federal law since 1974 has prohibited judges from hearing cases that involve a party in which they, their spouses, or their minor children have a legal or equitable interest however small. Uh, And what's incredible is just how many of these judges who are supposed to have an understanding of the law, remember, they're making rulings based on the law, uh, purport to not really know what the law is in regard to their own personal investments. The journal identified 36 conflicts by one judge in Colorado, R. Brooke Jackson, The cases included Apple, Chevron, Eli Lilly, Facebook, General Electric, Home Depot, Honeywell, International, uh, Johnson & Johnson, J.P. Morgan, Pfizer, and Wells Fargo. I mean, this judge is getting down, getting busy, right? Now, reached by phone, this is amazing, Judge Jackson said he had no idea which stocks he owns because a money manager handles them and because his wife fills out his disclosure forms. He said that because he doesn't know, he couldn't have a conflict of interest. Told he was required to know under the law, he said, that's news to me. Really? You're you're a judge. How do you not know what the law is, especially when it's a law pertaining to you? 
and what you can and can't do as a judge. And by the way, this has been going on for quite some time. Through my research, I found this headline uh, from the New York Times in 1999. Judges ruled on firms in their portfolios. In 2014, the Center for Public Integrity found that 59% of all federal appellate judges reported owning stock despite the risk that the companies in which they have a financial stake could come before them. By comparison, the prohibition of American families who directly own stock is much lower, just 15%. I'm sorry, the proportion, not prohibition, my bad. Uh, By comparison, the Uh, proportion of American families who directly own stock is much lower, just 15% as of 2010. And then, of course, uh, there's another example from 2016, following a Washington Post investigation in 2006, not 2016. In 2006, the courts even added a computerized screening process to help judges avoid such conflicts, yet the problems continue. And it's no surprise that This is a system that enriches the elites and continues to make the rich richer. Uh, When you take a a step back and you uh, take a broader view of the stock market and who happens to be invested in it, it's not the majority of Americans. It's not ordinary Americans. tends to be the wealthiest Americans. In fact, the wealthiest 10% of Americans now own 89% of all U.S. stocks, which is a record high that highlights the stock market's role in increasing wealth inequality. So look, the point that I'm trying to make is the very people who we elect, the very people we turn to for justice happen to be the people who have this massive conflict of interest. They are personally enriched by the very market forces, right? The market activity and behavior that puts us at a disadvantage. And so when you hear the media's coverage of the ongoing negotiations of the budget reconciliation bill, push back against this idea that you have all these different parties negotiating on good faith. If they have these personal investments, if we have this system of legalized bribery, those are systemic issues that again, have much more sway over their behavior, over how they govern the country than we do as unorganized Americans. And I I say unorganized because really this this is a commentary about power dynamics, right? A very tiny percentage of this country is is unionized, right? About 6% of workers are unionized. Uh, We don't really have much power because of how atomized we are. At the same time, all of the incentives for these lawmakers, for these judges, for these very people in positions of power is in the wrong place. It benefits them, but puts us at a disadvantage. We need to understand the market forces, the way the system is set up to, to do a real analysis And also have sound predictions of what happens in regard to legislation, legislation that, um, yes, uh, at first seemed incredibly robust, but now is uh, on the chopping block as all of these incredibly popular provisions get cut out. We are the only industrialized country, the only developed country that doesn't offer common sense uh, social safety net programs for its people. I'm talking about uh, health care. I'm talking about uh, paid family leave. There's a reason for this. It isn't because we're uh, uniquely bad people. It's because we have a system set up to ensure that corporations uh, continue to make record profits, continue to hoard the wealth, continue to pay dividends to their shareholders. Everything revolves around that. 
And unless we change that power structure, unless we change the way the system works, we're not going to be able to get legislation that we so desperately need. Kale. Hmm. Uh, I mean, but Anna, isn't it just in the national interest for these people to have all this information? I mean, come on, shouldn't, shouldn't they know these things and then also have the personal freedom that the same national interests that gives us freedom and, and democracy and all these rights, shouldn't they also then have the freedom to then use that information? I mean, what's, what's wrong with like, these are just some pretty basic principles about America, right? <laughs> I mean, um, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> like yesterday, Elizabeth Warren had a tweet about how ridiculous it is that federal officials can be invested in individual stocks. And, you know, I responded to it and said, I I totally agree. So what's going to be done about it? And I was being a little facetious because obviously I know nothing's going to be done about it. Right. Like it's, it's a bit of an issue because the very people who are benefiting from this system aren't going to want to change the system. Um, And so Really, we can't like just turn to electoral politics to solve it. Um, I think that it actually takes a lot more work than that. Um, And it takes uh, the organizing on the ground uh, by people who want to force a change to that system. But yeah, I mean, like the, the conflict of interest is so clear and it's so brazen and it gets so little coverage in our media. Right. Well, and it's just also that there are structures and institutions that are going to replicate themselves over time. That's why they are in fact structural or institutional and not just like ephemeral, you know, it's not just like someone's opinion this week that, Oh, I think I'm going to invest in stocks because I think it's a good idea. It's uh, because there's actually institutional and structural benefits to these things and punishments when people try to change that. So the fact that, you know, Elizabeth Warren might genuinely truly want to change the system. She truly finds it amoral or wrong or, you know, against certain democratic principles or something. Uh, And that's fine. That's good. I'm glad that she feels that way. But like she in her position in the Democratic Party, both as a single senator, but also just kind of in how the institutions of the Democratic Party work. I mean, she's not going to be able to transform that, that it's this is like. This is what I'm about to get to in a, in a second. It's it's funny because I, I my segment kind of just bleeds so perfectly out of what you've just said. Uh, but just before that, I mean, this is essentially why uh, working people and the poor historically have said, oh, yeah, no, the rich are not just going to, like, change the system that's to their benefit. They're not they're not going to willingly do that. Because even if you have, even if they are morally good individuals, there's going to be incentives and, and punishments against doing that change that are going exactly. to override their best intentions and morals. Exactly. I mean, Nando says it all the time, and he's absolutely correct. It, it doesn't matter what's in lawmakers' hearts. Yeah. Like, it doesn't matter if they're good people or, or, I mean, it does matter a little if they're like genuinely bad people. But um, it, it's it's about... Yeah, the incentives and disincentives, absolutely. And so, uh, oftentimes he 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 talks about it in the context of like progressive lawmakers not doing enough, um, or progressive lawmakers kind of turning on their constituents. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, all of the incentives work against us. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, uh, the question is, how do you how do you change that power dynamic? Um, you know, so there's actual punishment that can be handed down, um, by the people as opposed to those in positions of power or the elite. Exactly. So actually, 
I think it, I'm going to just go into my segment actually, because it, I try to address some of that. Um, and then I also am keeping my eye on the clock because we have Andrew Coburn joining us in a little bit. Uh, but so I'm going to get to that and hopefully uh, we'll give us something of, you know, somewhere to start as far as like what to do about this. Maybe. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, as we've already been talking about already, the Biden infrastructure bill and American politics more broadly are being held up by just a pair of senators. Uh, obviously, you all know who they are, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. Now, whatever their motivation might be for just being super generous, whether it's money or ego or political favors, our electoral system rewards individuals at the expense of the party that they're in or just social progress more broadly. Uh, in other parties around the world, party leadership can discipline their parliamentary mem- members through institutional means, dealing with fundraising, committee appointments and selection. These parties can even kick out members who are diverging with the leadership. But the American electoral system gives politicians politicians no such leverage. Once elected, every politician serves effectively as a party unto themselves when it comes to decision making. Sure, they rely on the party for fundraising, but if you're willing to do what capital wants, it's not all that difficult to get donors. In light of this, I think it's worth looking back at how the left has broken through in transient politicians in the past, because while things look bleak now, and they undoubtedly are, working people have overcome situations in the past where they didn't have the right to vote or they didn't have the right to join unions. So first, it's useful to understand the difference between interest and capacity. I think that's just kind of fundamental to political action. Everyone has an interest and how they differ from one another has to do with their social situation. So if you're a worker, meaning that you have to show up to a job every day and labor under a boss, you have a material interest in satisfying your immediate needs and not working too hard in the process. But if you're an employer, it's in your interest to work your employees as hard as you possibly can, because from that standpoint, workers' wages are a cost and you want to get the most bang for your buck. So these interests are obviously antagonistic. They are in constant conflict with one another because workers are dependent on a boss for a wage, but bosses need to squeeze the workers day after day in order to realize a profit. And for the first few centuries of capitalism, according to Howard Botwick, that's exactly what happened. Uh, during the initial stages of modern industry in England, from 1780 to, 18, to the 1860s, we have already seen what becomes of the working class when capital truly has free reign within the labor market. In the midst of unprecedented leaps in the productivity of labor, wages and working conditions deteriorated so severely that the state had to intervene in order to place certain minimal restrictions on the length of the working day and child labor. In other words, the labor movement came together primarily to counteract this process, because while the state stepped in to stop the capitalists from literally and inadvertently murdering their own workforce by just pushing them to work harder and harder and harder because to drive for profits, their impact, the state's impact was kind of marginal. Uh, It was just kind of keeping the system in place. It was stopping capitalists from killing them, really, so you can keep capitalism going. This takes us from the question of interest to that of capacity. So to realize social change, people need power, and power resources that affect change have to be those that systematically deal with how structures are created and recreated over time. A a one-time quick fix or fluke doesn't really cut it. Workers' capacity for social change is derived from their economic position. So while workers need to show up to work to earn a wage to survive, the boss is also in a dependent relationship with the workers. Any holdup in getting products to the competitive markets can be very costly for a capitalist firm. 
The very fact that workers and management are locked in this antagonistic relationship means that the boss needs them to show up to work regularly because they provide the labor that creates the profit and keeps the company competitive. This is the most powerful source of leverage for the working class, and utilizing this leverage as a group is what has led to change in the past. To quote Botwinick again, there is substantial evidence indicating that the real wages of workers did not begin to rise significantly until the trade union movement became effectively organized in the second half of the 19th century. Before this period, real wage rates were continually forced down to bare subsistence and often below it. But getting everyone to organize collectively and sustain that organization is massively difficult, especially when it comes on top of your need to spend most of your waking time at a job. So labor organizers very quickly realized that they had to find ways to compel the state to act on their behalf. And rather than constantly fighting the boss, the alternative over the past 100 years has been to construct institutions that can engage in class struggle over the long term, as well as fight for changes through policy. But the state and capitalism is not neutral. As most people know, it's captured by the rich. And it's not just because there are a few bad apples, you know, although most of them are pretty rotten. Uh, the state and the politicians within it are dependent on the on the econ- are dependent on the economy performing well. Uh, recessions or other economic crises invariably lead to politicians getting kicked out of office, but they don't control economic growth. Capitalists do. And so while capitalists are primarily concerned with making profits, Politicians are primarily concerned with creating the conditions that are favorable to capitalists making profits. Otherwise, again, they'll get the boot. Um, As Ralph Miliband said back in 1983, uh, an accurate and realistic model of the relationship between capitalists and the state is one of partnership between two different separate forces linked to each other by many threads, yet each having its own separate sphere of concerns. The terms of that partnership are not fixed, but constantly shifting and affected by many different circumstances and notably by the state of class struggle. It is not at any rate a partnership in which the state may be taken necessarily to be the junior partner. On the contrary, the contradictions and shortcomings of capitalism and the class pressures and social tensions this produces requires requires the state to assume an ever more pronounced role in the defense of the social order. So, Again, even though capitalists are not, or excuse me, the state isn't a junior partner to the capitalists, politicians with or without direct influence by those capitalists end up interested in re- reproducing capitalism at large. Uh, as Vivek Chibber said in the ABCs of Capitalism, governments, even the most radical ones, can be brought to their knees by capital without ever firing a gun. All that capital has to do is to slow down the tempo of economic activity, slow down the pace of investment, and political leaders have little choice but to change their priorities so that placating investors pushes every other priority off the table. Real power to make social change within capitalism takes more than getting the right party or the right people into office. It requires finding a way to counter the economic power of capitalists. And the only way to do so is by building an alternative source of power, not just in the state, but in the economy itself, by the agent best positioned to achieve it. And, you know, workers. And his answer is workers. Uh, this can be easily understood by looking at recent American history. Kevin Young, Tarun Banji, and Michael Schwartz analyzed in their book, Lovers of Power, how the Obama administration dealt with corporations hoarding massive proportions of their wealth in offshore bank accounts after the 2008 crash. The primary goal, the primary goal of Obama's economic policy was to get these corporations to reinvest in the economy, to increase employment uh, and circulate more goods. Uh, 
the way that they did this, they, uh, they write, in order to boost business confidence and therefore end the capital strike, the Obama administration granted the dominant corporations in each sector virtual veto power over the reforms that might affect them. This dynamic was captured in a 20, uh, 2010 comment by former vice presidential vice, former vice president Al Gore bemoaning the failure of climate change legislation in the Senate. He says the influence of special interests is now at an extremely unhealthy level. And it's to the point where it's virtually impossible for participants in the current political system to enact any significant change without first seeking and gaining permission from the largest commercial interests who are most affected by the proposed change. This is why Young, Banshee, and Schwartz argue that the real target of our political activity can't be the politicians, but profitability, which means primarily targeting capitalists. They break further, mass resistance is most effective when it directly targets corporations and state agencies. By threatening the profits or the functioning of those institutions, popular disruption can compel their leaders to accept progressive changes in government policy. The way we know this is by looking back at historical cases that demonstrate this. So the most exemplary is Sweden. The Swedish model is by no means the only way that any social progress has ever been made, but as the country that has reached the most decommodified social democracy in the world, it's probably worth studying. The Swedish working class succeeded in massively transforming their society in a way that put human needs over profit precisely because they found ways to counteract not just individual capitalists, but the entire market system. And through the buildup of organizational capacity within their workers' party, the Swedish Social Democratic Party, and their trade union confederation, also known as the LO, they systematically challenged the boss's total control of the, over the workplace and forced their way into government. And in 1932, the same year that FDR would be elected president in the U.S., they created the very first Swedish social democratic government. And the way that they maintain the way they maintain this power is described by soci sociologist Walter Cor Corpy in the following way: the key to the new strategy was the use of public power, founded in organizational resources and exercised through the government, to encroach upon the power of capital. Through economic policies, the business cycle would be evened out. The level of employment of crucial importance for the welfare of the working class would be kept high through political means and thereby partly withdrawn from the control of capital. State intervention would be used to induce structural changes in the economy in order to increase its efficiency. Public power, above all, would be used to affect the distribution of the results of production. Through fiscal and social policies, a more equal distribution of income would be achieved. Political power founded in control over organization would be pitched against economic power founded in control over capital, and that would come to affect the distribution of an increasing proportion of the national product. The policy was to tax the rich and put unemployed people back to work through a massive public jobs program. Does that sound familiar at all? Uh, but the difference between them and us is that the Swedes had both a highly organized labor movement and a labor party in government able to put up a fight with the business parties. That is, they didn't just move from one fight with the bosses to the next whenever there was an issue. Instead, they created institutions which, single which their single focus was to fight on behalf of their interests in the long term. And they largely succeeded in implementing those policies against the wishes of employers. Major strike and job actions had successfully put the party in power. But throughout the 1930s, unlike the Americans, industrial conflict actually went down and workers had to go on strike less because the Social Democratic Party only ever needed the threat of a strike to wring uh, concessions out of capitalists. This was eventually codified in 1938 with the Maine Agreement, uh, 
Gosta uh, Espen Anderson writes, with the, the Social Democratic Party government and the resolution of labor market relations in the 1938 Maine Agreement uh, came an end to chronic industrial conflict. The labor movement as a whole could now bargain directly from a position of strength with the employer organizations and the conservatives to reach mutually acceptable terms for economic and social legislation, economic planning, and the conditions for structural economic change. That's... Uh, it's again, it's hard for us to imagine this in our country because, you know, so much of labor policy goes through the NLRB. But what happened in Sweden through the main agreement is that now you have the labor unions uh, represented by a labor confederation directly in negotiation with the employers represented by a different uh, confederation, effectively. Uh, and they would be the ones that would determine basically the rules of the game for, for employers and employees in the workplace. This would eventually turn into the post-war solidaristic wage policy, whereby the trade unions could effectively keep firms profitable while also maintaining high wages and working standards for the employees. Uh, Corpy writes, by requiring equal wages for equal work, irrespective of the profitability of the enterprise, the least profitable firm would be squeezed out of the market. The overwhelming organizational capacity of the labor movement and the party meant that they had greater power to implement policies that not only benefited the working class, but created a lasting social base built on solidarity. Uh, Esping Anderson writes, a social democratic class formation depends on the eradication of differentiated entitlements, means-tested and targeted benefits, individualistic insurance schemes, and self-help principles. Reforms must avoid situations in which collective services breed discontent between those who pay and those who receive. Now, all those things I just mentioned that S.P. Anderson just mentioned are basically the things that we ended up getting in the U.S., whereas the Swedish and the, in the larger Scandinavian countries ended up getting uh, universal programs. We got means testing program, means tested programs. Um, so more concretely, how does it compare with the U.S.? Well, at the same time that this was going on in Sweden, we had the New Deal. Our situation, in contrast, shows both the possibilities and, you know, mostly the severe limitations of not having the working class power resources to enact change. So the first thing to note is that Franklin Roosevelt didn't come to power in a labor party or riding on a wave of labor militancy. Instead, as Thomas Ferguson's crucial analysis points out, Roosevelt came to power in a new historic block of capital-intensive industries, investment banks, and internationally-oriented commercial firms, commercial banks, rather. Uh, his first piece, the, uh, the first pieces of his New Deal legislation were ambitious, but restrained. And rather than aiming to build up the fighting capacity of working people, his policies were meant to jumpstart the economy with some experimentation and public-private efforts. Historian John Riggs documents the process of creating the Tennessee Valley Authority, also known as the TVA, writing, in a soaring message to Congress on April 10th, 1933, Roosevelt asked for legislation to create a corporation closed with the power of government in that of the flexibility and initiative of a private enterprise. Describing the dam at Muscle Shoals, which will be where the TVA, uh, the first TVA dam is created, uh, as but a small part of the potential usefulness of the entire Tennessee River, he emphasized that such use transcends near power development. It enters the wide field of flood control, soil erosion, the fourth state a station, elimination from agricultural use of maligno land and the distribution diversification of industry. While national planning would, not, would have been a bridge too far, regional planning to alleviate poverty and unemployment was not. Business interests epitomized in the figure uh, 
like the excuse me, like the figure uh, energy lawyer Wendell Winkie, were willing to go along with the plan only because of the major persistent economic uh, economic because of the major persistent economic crisis of the, the Great Depression. Uh, Riggs continues. Uh, Wilkie praised the magnificent development plan for the Tennessee Valley and said that the industry had heard with gratification that President Roosevelt has no desire to impair the investments already in the valley, and we don't believe the protection of our investments would uh, impair that development. But even still, uh, he goes on to say, Wilkie quickly zeroed in on the major threat, government-owned transmission lines that would allow TVA to sell power directly to current Commonwealth and Southern customers. To take our market is to take our property, he argued. In the early New Deal context, what enabled success was not the strength of the working class, but the weakness and the insecurity of business, and therefore the latitude that the crisis gave to politicians to step in. Uh, one last quote. Despite Wilkie's skilled pro- uh, protestations and so much hated uh, political opposition, Congress acted quickly. Democrats commanded large majorities in both chambers. Public works uh, jobs, public work jobs could alleviate economic hardship, and people distrusted the power industry. Roosevelt was the man of the hour, so it passed. Uh, of course, the New Deal would see a major labor mobilization, and the success of Social Security or the creation of the Labor Relations Board uh, wouldn't have been possible without working class pressure. But at the end of the decade, the U.S. wouldn't have anything like the Swedish main agreement. So what does that mean for today, for a new New Deal or a Green New Deal? Well, it means we're lacking the pretty key ingredients that made either the Swedish model or the New Deal a success. This is seemingly oblivious to many of the people in government or in NGOs outside of government pushing for social change. A perfect example is the efforts to create a civilian climate corps modeled after Roosevelt's Civilian Conservation Corps. As Fred Stafford recently laid out in Damage Magazine, the CCC 2.0 proposal is a massive jobs program packed full of progressive and socialist ideas that go well beyond the CCC 1.0. And up to uh, two one-year stints in the program, an enrollee would see meaningful work on climate resilience and decarbonization, a $15 minimum wage, healthcare and childcare, no restriction to only young people, no requirements to live out in camps or even away from one's home, the explicit inclusion of skilled labor, explicit ties to union apprenticeships, and the program ends, when the program ends, support for collective bargaining and union recruitment among enrollees, etc. cetera. Uh, he goes on, actually, <laughs> uh, to say that all that sounds pretty great, but each reason why the proposal would attract young members of the working class is also a reason why it would invite a sure-footed counteract uh, counterattack by the capitalist class, and not just the usual political fights over the dollar amounts of appropriation. So what are the key takeaways of this comparison between Swedish social democracy and the United States in the current context? I think on the one hand, we saw a system where working class power was institutionalized so that it could fight and grow over time. And on the other hand, we saw a system where progressive policy was possible, but mostly in moments of crisis and without resulting in a foundation for sustained working class power in the economy or in the state. Now, obviously, we're in the middle of striketober, so we're seeing a swell of union workers fighting back against the workplace pressures imposed during COVID. That's important, and we should do all that we can to support these workers and provide encouragement. But this is historically only a short moment in the context of a very long period of relative powerlessness for the working class. This moment must be sustained if we are to reach broader social power. And without an organized labor movement or a party by and for working people, the Biden plans for infrastructure and green jobs are going to keep getting whittled down by business. And we have to be sober about that. 
so to finally, one last quote, quoting Fred Stafford one more time in, in Damage. He writes that nostalgia among highly educated liberals for the ecological dimensions of the original CCC, in this case, only veils the political economy that enabled it. And in turn, what is possible in our current state of working class demobilization. So we have to focus on the political economy. We have to focus on the institutionalization of our politics. Uh, and we have to focus on rebuilding the labor movement because those, that's the only way that we're going to get anything. And in the short term, we're probably going to be losing both in the labor fight and probably also in Congress. But that is the challenge for us in the 21st century if we're to ever achieve anything as great as Swedish social democracy. So, All right. That was great. Um, I really liked the comparative analysis that you did there um, and, and putting things in, in you know, historical context. And, you know, as you were talking uh, about the strike activity that actually lessened um, because the very threat of a strike, uh, you know, had an impact. Um, I was also thinking about how the United States differs from Scandinavian countries in regard to minimum wage, right? So they don't have like a federal minimum wage like we do here in the United States. And it's because labor unions um, do the negotiating on behalf of workers and they uh, end up securing far better pay, far better wages for their workers as opposed to what we deal with here in the United States. Uh, You know, we rely on the federal government and um, that clearly has not played out so well for us considering the federal minimum wage hasn't been increased since I think the beginning of the Obama administration, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Yeah. Well, it's so it's it's funny because it's actually kind of it's in some ways it's not the we rely on the government because of the fact that most of the wage gains that have been achieved in the United States went through personal or not personal, but private contracts between employers and employees that like those wage gains weren't brought about across the board as just universal wage increases, which is what happened in Sweden, which is that the unions ended up negotiating not for particular unions, but for all working people across the board. Mm-hmm. And um, and they had what I was saying before, um, solidaristic wage policy, where basically there's a little bit of a pressure on the top, says, you know, some people on the top are not going to be making as much as maybe they would have otherwise. But really, it means that, like the majority of it is this massive push up from the bottom, from the floor, that everyone from the floor up is getting way higher wages than they would have otherwise that capitalists would have wanted to have given out otherwise. Uh, and it's through this policy that, um, you know, I mean, it's, it, it really, the, the LO and the Swedish social democracy, the Swedish social democracy is incredible. Um, and it's something I think we need to keep studying just because, uh, it's it's funny, like conservatives love to to say, you know, this is actually it's still it's still capitalism. You know, you guys, you know, you want to praise Sweden, but it's actually capitalism. And it's like the reason why it works is because like working people actually had institutions that fought for them and mm-hmm. like at the expense of capitalists that like right. people, the conservatives are defending all the time uh, in that historical context felt like shit i guess we're like we ha- we can't fight back like we're stuck in this like never-ending arrangement where like you know we can't just dominate these people we have to like make these massive concessions yeah and and what ends up happening um because of this feeling of powerlessness is a lot of the attention ends up getting um focused on these like small i think incredibly unproductive battles that have nothing to do with improving 
uh, working conditions and wages for workers, right? So some of, I mean, Ben Burgess talks about this all the time, but I think that's why you see a lot of the like culture around, uh, you know, mob mentality stuff online or whatever. You know, I think, I think that it's a way of feeling like you have some power in a system where really you don't have much power and you you can't really change your conditions. Um, Anyway, I want to go to our guest because I know he's been waiting um, and I'm really excited for this conversation. So joining us now is Andrew Coburn. He is the Washington editor for Harper's Magazine and the author of many articles and books on national security. Those books include Rumsfeld, an American disaster, kill chain, drones, and the rise of high-tech assassins, and the most recently uh, published, The Spoils of War, Power, Profit, and the American War Machine. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, such a pleasure. Thank you. All right. So I'll I'll start off with um, something that I I noticed was like a main theme in your book, and it was uh, in regard to just the amount of money and the amount of resources that get spent on defense here in the United States and how uh, that spending really doesn't translate to uh, better national security capabilities. Can you discuss that in more detail? Yes, I think it's very important. It's, it's a point that's all too often neglected. I mean, there's a, there's a perception that um, more money gets you more defense. Um, and whereas, you know, uh, progressive uh, elements might say, well, may say, well, um, we need the money for other beneficial things like um, health, education, and so forth. There's an acceptance the idea that that actually all that money translates into some kind of meaningful military capacity. And what is actually clear, and as I argue in the book or point out in the book, and is is very clear, it doesn't. In fact, more money gets you less defense um, because the object of the exercise is not defense, is not military efficiency and capability, uh, whether you think it's a bad thing or, or a good thing or a bad thing, um, but it is to make money to enhance the power and profit of the uh, relevant interests, the corporations <clears throat> and their allies, their partners in the uh, in the military establishment. Right. Actually, so I want to uh, delve into that a little bit further. There's a quote that I was uh, I want to pull up from from uh, the recent book um, where, you know, you write um, in the chapter, the military industrial virus, uh, you quote uh, from a former Pentagon analyst, Frank uh, Spinney, I believe. Yeah. Uh, right. He, he calls the military a living organic system. Uh So you write, the MIC, the military industrial complex, has a compulsion to demand and receive more of our money every year. Contrary to common belief, this imperative does not mean that the budget is propelled by foreign wars, rather that the wars are a consequence of the conquest or of the quest for bigger budgets. And so I I found the, the, the wording interesting that you wrote that there's a compulsion. And so, you know, I'm typically a little skeptical of, you know, sometimes the explanation would be there's just kind of a momentum, something, if something's going on, it just has a self-generating momentum. But um, I'm curious how you understand what the compulsion is. How, why is it that the the budget grows when, you know, it doesn't seem, it seems like it is from on the surface, it just seems like it is just for its own sake. Yeah. I mean, there seems to be, I mean, I, <clears throat> in the, in our system, in the U S economy and U S society, it's, 
I mean, it's my belief that the military-industrial complex um, is sort of a <clears throat> has its power has grown and its 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 function in the society has become so pervasive that it um, it just has this compulsion to grow. It needs to grow. I mean, I cannot. I mean, it would take a longer book than the one I wrote and many wiser heads than mine to explain exactly why this has happened. All I can say is it has happened and has uh, been happening, um, I would say, really since I would date it to 1948. You could argue that, I mean, just thinking about it, you could say, well, um, I know you've just been talking about the New Deal, but really, you know, once things really employment situation and the health of the economy really turned or began to turn around or <clears throat> did turn around in the late 30s once the sort of defense build-up in Europe began um, and, um, you know, with knock-on effects here um, and then, you know, obviously took, went, took over the entire economy during World War II, then there was a something of a, of a, there was a decline. They actually thought they could have a, there was a peace dividend and, you know, the, the whole, the wartime economy was to a large extent dismantled. And then actually around 1948, uh, there's an interesting book about this, uh, Truman and the War Scare of 1948. It started to build up again and there was, and it was propelled by, you know, discovery of a threat which came particularly from the uh, aerospace industry saying we actually need, we, we, we can't actually make it in the civilian world, uh, making civilian products. We actually need war production, war contracts, and so and then threats were uh, duly unveiled. Then it took, you know, got amped up to a tremendous extent in the Korean War. And you quoted uh, uh, Frank, or rather Franklin Spinney, actually everyone calls him Chuck, uh, Chuck's... Um, analysis of budgets since actually 1954 he took it from 1954 um up to uh, recent years and d- discerned this steady five percent overall growth and what i thought was i found fascinating as i talk about in the book is that <clears throat> whenever that growth curve looks like it's being interrupted seriously so, i mean it goes up and down a bit but when it's the underlining curve is interrupted then the system reacts. Suddenly we have a threat. We have a further justification, the, uh, albeit, you know, being the missile gap um, of 1960, uh, then Vietnam, uh, then um, after the end of Vietnam, suddenly discovery of a supposedly much stronger Soviet Union than we suspected. Then after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the emergence, beginning of the emergence of China, um, and steps to make the Soviet or Russia hostile again. It seems to be, and as I, I make this, you know, comparisons, uh, or Chuck, Chuck came up with it, that it's like an organic creature that has to feed and has to, you know, its basic impulse is dedicated to protecting its food supply and growing. And that is indeed what we see happening and is definitely happening today. Can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, just a continuation of what you were discussing regarding the aerospace industry and uh, their inability to uh, make products uh, that 
or, or have a business model, I suppose, uh, that uh, mostly uh, provides products for uh, average consumers. Did that uh, coincide with the uh, evolution, for lack of a better word, of the Air Force? Uh, the Air Force, uh, you know, it, it's changed throughout the decades. Uh, can you discuss that and whether that coincides at all with the uh, desires of the aerospace industry? Very much so. I mean, the the creation of the Air Force um, I mean, has, has different strands, and I talk about this a bit, a bit in the book. Um, <clears throat> you know, the Air Force originally was a, you know, was this sort of adjunct to the army, lower in status and certainly in budget to the artillery. Um, and they chafed at this. And in the, particularly in the 1930s, well, going back to the 20s, but in the 30s, they really got to work on making the justification for them to, to be an independent service with the command of money and uh, power that that would give them. And they did that by saying, well, we can win wars on our own with our new technology enabling precision bombing and on which they spent an enormous amount of money. People forget this. I mean, even forget <clears throat> even before World War II, they were investing very heavily in precision bombing uh, and they tried it in World War II, and of course it was a complete bust. Uh, they they had this mechanistic view of of societies that you could take out a crucial component and that would give you victory because the enemy war machine would collapse, and they tried that on Germany, actually on Japan too, but more vividly on Germany, and it didn't work at all. And so they went to just mass extermination of civilians, which was the only thing they thought they could do, bombing and burning down cities. So, but in the course of that, and there's a particularly instructive story, which actually isn't isn't in my book, I have to confess, uh, uh, to do with the construction of the B-29 bomber, which was uh, actually cost as much or more money than the Manhattan Project, not something people generally know. They invested mm. more in building the B-29 bomber than they did in building the atomic bomb. Um and they did it in Kansas. Um, there was a thing called the Battle of Kansas, where they basically devoted the entire resources of the war economy, or as much as could be spared, to uh, to building this plane. Um, and you know, private industry was very much involved in that. I mean, the, whereas the other two services, the army had had its was you know liked to build its own weapons, and the navy, you know, uh, well, closely controlled the building of its own ships. The Air Force was built on a model of contracting out, of enriching, uh, supporting and enriching private aircraft, manuf- uh, privately owned aircraft manufacturers. Uh, there were a great deal of that in that time, very few now. But so they they did, and for a while the two coexist. Coexist. I mean, private, I mean, civilian and military production coexisted, although the military production subsidized the civilian. Um, something that's been you know, enormous row with the Europeans about that military contracts have been a way of subsidizing civilian production. And I found there's a particularly instructive story here in the case of the Boeing Corporation, which for a long time was the, you know, was our, <clears throat> our shining light of, su- of successful civilian airliner production. And that was true. They built you know, a great number of very good airplanes. Um, but and they at Boeing they would have a strict rule uh, for a long time that 
you if you worked on the defense side, because they also had enormous military contracts, you could not go and work on the civilian side because they knew that the habits of military production, which is basically very wasteful, cost plus contracts, shoddy, you know, untried technology, poor performance. If that seeped over into the civilian side, they'd never sell another airplane or they would have difficulty in doing so. Eventually that broke down um, and they, you know, the civilian side of Boeing became militarized and the ultimate result has been the, I would say, the impending or the near ruin of the Boeing Corporation. You had the 737 MAX, um, which, you know, killed a great number of people, which was really had all the hallmarks of a military contract. And the uh, 787 Dreamliner, the same thing. So it's a long-winded answer to your question. But the, I mean, there's been this, been this symbiosis between the aerospace industry and the military which has ensured, I think, that first of all, we had a a bloated aerospace industry and one which, to the degree it was, you know, ever more closely sort of intertwined with the military, led to imperfect or non-competitive, has led to uh, civilian production. Um, So, yeah, I'm glad you brought it up because it's a crucial part of the whole picture is uh, in the sort of path breaker in all in this and the prime example has been aerospace right yeah i mean you detailed that the technical development of equipment and weapons within the armed forces have been determined so much by this like the intra-agent agency budget competition over who's getting how much of the budget this year uh and you know you know the american empire's favorite son is typically the army but uh, a lot of it has come at the expense of the Air Force. Um, and it's interesting because it's like unlike typical, you know, capitalist competition where technical innovation is adopted because it benefits the, or the benefits are accrued on the market that, you know, they end up getting a relative advantage over someone else. It seems like that the competition within, you know, the the security state has actually developed less effective, uh, more dangerous weapons that end up, uh, you know, they're less in, the, in just the way you were just talking about that, you know, it ends up leading to more civilian deaths. It leads to, you know, uh, things that are created and then never used because they're completely faulty. Right. I mean, faulty because, yeah, but, it, you know, that all makes sense once you realize what the object of the exercise is, which is to, um, you know, to make money, increase, increase profit. Um, and in that way, the system works very well in a way that's obviously very very deleterious for the rest of society and indeed for the people on the receiving end of the war machine in action. Um, You know, I tell a couple of stories uh, in the book about the consequences of a particular, the, the mission as exercised by the U.S. Air Force of close support, meaning close support is a means support using uh, airplanes, or actually anything, but, you know, in this instance, airplanes to support troops on the ground, uh, to protect them, to (coughs) combine with them to confront the enemy. And the, there's a particular plane that was developed for quite interesting reasons to do with inter-service rivalry, uh, called the A-10, which actually does the job of protecting troops on the ground very well. Um, because 
it was designed by some far-sighted people to enable the pilot to be able to see what was happening, not to have some electronic interface, but to actually see what was happening with his own eyes uh, on the ground and to be able to do so in safety because the plane is very is very cleverly designed to be able to withstand a lot of damage and to not be shot down very easily. And that has been... Um, so you think they'd want that, but no, they don't because it's cheap, it's simple, uh, and it has to do with protecting the army, which the Air Force doesn't care for at all. It doesn't want to be dragged into any you know, ground, any association with ground combat because its raison d'etre on which it was founded was the idea that it wins wars, it you know, exercises power completely independently of anyone else, therefore needs lots of money to do so. So therefore they said, well, okay, they're trying to get rid of the A-10. And in the examples I, show, I give in the book, the stories I tell, it was a case where the Air Force made, preferred the use of a B-1 bomber, which was a horrendously expensive uh, $300 million airplane designed to go to Moscow at supersonic speeds and drop nuclear weapons on Moscow. Um, they used that, they insisted on using that to for ground support, for supporting troops on the ground. And as a result, in two, you know, I think fairly horrifying examples I give, actually there are many, many more, but I highlight these two, they kill, well, in one case, they killed a number of American troops, and the other, they killed, a, you know, an Afghan farm family. I just say that was just one one atrocity in a, you know, mid hundreds of thousands in that horrible war. But it was, you know, it was a result to understand why that Afghan family or those American soldiers had to die. You have to understand the whole uh, sort of bureaucratic economic rivalry between the services and their, you know, and the Air Force's association with the aerospace and electronics industries, which bring about this situation. You know, since we're speaking about Afghanistan, what do you make of President Joe Biden's decision to follow through with withdrawing U.S. troops from Afghanistan, given the tremendous amount of pressure that he received both from um, private defense contractors, uh, but also from the corporate media that, uh, of course, tried to... Share the story with Americans as if it was this incredibly irresponsible and dangerous thing to do. Um, it seemed honestly shocking that Biden followed through on it, especially given the, uh, you know, the industrial military industrial complex and the the usual pressure that our lawmakers and presidents uh, cave to uh, the pressures from corporations that make quite a bit of money from continuing on with these uh, forever wars. Yes, I think the the real reason is that, I mean, they know better. They know that, well, first of all, I mean, you have to remember Biden was, when he got in, Trump had all, already effectively surrendered to the Taliban. I mean, there was mm-hmm. a, there was a, a, you know, there was an agreement in place um, that, you know, we would withdraw, the U.S. would withdraw this year. Um, and, Thanks to that agreement, the Taliban had were basically observing a ceasefire so far as Americans were concerned. I mean, no American was killed um, leading up to the evacuation. I think I can't remember for I think for a year um, because the Taliban were not shooting at Americans. 
Biden knew perfectly well, and all the rest of them knew perfectly well as well. If if Biden had violated and said, well, actually, we decide to stay after all, um, you know, then the Taliban, Taliban would have started killing Americans again, which wouldn't, you know, wouldn't have, <coughs> wouldn't have looked good. And people, you know, the people here would have been asking why. And certainly the Republicans would have made a thing about that. The second reason, I think, is that, I mean, you know, they, they, as I say, they all knew better. And they know, I think it was in a way of sort of um, just reminding him that the, the furore and all these you know, disgusting denunciations from people like Petraeus and, you know, and all the sort of hacks and harlings uh, associated with the military industrial complex. Um, it's a way of sort of ad- admonitory saying, just here's what you get if you, if you end a war. And so don't even think about doing that again. And just to remind you who is ultimately in charge here. Um, that's the way I see it. And of course, they knew, again, they all knew perfectly well, there's a much bigger prize in prospect, which is the whole buildup of this you know, confrontation with China. Mm. Um, you know, that the, um, we weren't, by the end, we weren't spending that much in Afghanistan. Um, I mean, there was a lot of private contractors who were still doing pretty well. And we were, you know, we were going to shovel out, I think, $3 billion uh, three or, uh, around that for, for the war. But you know, that's really a chicken feed compared to the torrent of money that's being unleashed now in the confrontation with China now that we've Can discovered. You... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so just to follow up, because I'm I'm actually very fascinated to hear your thoughts uh, regarding the, uh, you know, military buildup uh, regarding China, uh, record arms sales to Japan and other countries, India. Um, how do you see this playing out? Uh, because it certainly is... Uh, forcing China to build up its military capabilities as well. They're spending more and more money on their military, not nearly close to what the United States spends on defense. But how do you see this playing out? Well, it's hard. I mean, you know, my my hunch is that, you know, it'll be like um, like it was with the Soviet Union, you know, for the for the years of the Cold War, that Cold War. where you know there was a lot of huffing and puffing and heavy expenditure and proxy wars around the globe, um, you know, Vietnam and so forth. Um, but in the end, there was never actually both sides were well aware of what the consequences of actually going to war with each other would be. And I'd like to think, and I basically do think, but I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't say with great certainty, that um, the same thing will happen with China. Um, the danger is that I think, you know, the, I can't speak for the Chinese, but certainly on this side, um, the sort of level of irresponsibility is is edging higher all the time. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the nuclear, in our nuclear weapons policy now, um, there's a sort of insidious um, growth in notion uh, or sort of insidiously increasing uh, uh, prominence given to low-yield nuclear weapons, to blurring the line between conventional nuclear weapons. You know, that this is very much explicitly part of policy now, and we developed uh, various bombs and warheads, a couple at least, to, you know, to have a minimal... I mean, I say minimal, it's uh, in relative terms, uh, explosive yield for a nuclear weapon. I think... uh, the B, the dialer yield B sixty one twelve bomb, a new one has a yield can be 
have a yield as low as 300, a third of a kiloton, which is 300 tons of TNT equivalent, which is something enormous, actually. Anyway, I, I, I'm giving you this example. Of, I mean, that is a horrifyingly stupid and irresponsible way to approach things, but that's that's the way they are thinking. So, right. you know, they play war games all the time with China, and then they say, and that's used in the, you know, first and foremost to say, oh, my gosh, we lost to the Chinese. Because mm-hmm. they're, um, you know, they're, they're so much, they're so clever and devious, and they've stolen so much technology and all the rest, um, and therefore we need more, more resources, more money. I mean, it, and you have these ludicrous statements coming out of the Pentagon. Um, you know, the new secretary of the Air Force, Mr. Kendall, said the other day, "It's, I think, it's scared China. It's China, China, China. Ask, ask what you ask. He was asked for his priorities, and he said, China, China, China." Mm. And they continually talk about the China fight. So they're in a sort of welter of hysteria and, you know, and encouraging the worst, most sort of revanchist elements in Taiwan and Japan. Um, I thought Shinzo Abe was bad enough, but now, you know, the regime that now in power is, you know, hell bent on increasing militarization. So this has to be dangerous. Um, You know, I don't think absent a Chinese invasion of uh, Taiwan, which I really don't think is going to happen. As I say, my hunch is that we, you know, we'll have a Cold War. And, you know, what is different, of course, from the last one is we didn't depend on <laughs> we didn't depend on the Soviet Union for most of our consumer goods, whereas we right. Robin, <laughs> yeah, the economic component. Again. The economic compo- the economic component of this um, is is really fascinating, and and for all of the huffing and puffing about uh, the stolen intellectual property, I mean, what's usually left out of that uh, discussion is the context of the United States wanting to take advantage of cheap labor, mm-hmm. uh, and and essentially uh, giving China um, an advantage that we're now complaining about. <laughs> it's just it's well, incredible. right, and also, isn't it? I find it very. Interesting and amusing that, uh, well, interesting anyway, that um, while, you know, the, we talk about, you know, there's endless talk from uh, the Pentagon about the China fight and the lots of rhetoric uh, from the White House about, you know, confronting China. And you have <clears throat> Biden continually saying things he's not meant to say, like, you know, we will come to the military aid of, you know, we will basically go to war over Taiwan if necessary. Uh, meanwhile, uh, go, you know, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, um, whatever other banks and private equity funds are being are eagerly accepting the Chinese permission to invest in China. Mm-hmm. Um, so our e- economic collaboration or the finance capital is, you know, still happily investing in China. Uh, no one seems to be stopping the BlackRock um, while we're supposedly getting ready to go to war with them. It's, um, right. It shows up the sort of irrationality of the whole thing. Right. Yeah. It, it does seem it's, it's quite a bit of saber rattling to, you know, as basically something of like a, a bargaining chip or something to in, in the course of competition of, you know, we actually want this different economic deal or, whatever, but it, it does seem like there is both uh, a combination of greater economic costs to war now, I mean, both China, but just more broadly, um, and also more political costs that it's not as easy for, you know, states today to go to war. Um, for most states, it's war is not even 
on the table that, you know, like when Germany and the U.S. are arguing over something, war is never considered an option, whereas 100 years ago it might have been. Um, just like yeah. kind of how dramatic that change has been, um, maybe goes uh, understated or something. But you you do mention that this may be a weird roundabout way of getting to a different question, which was about um, you mentioned uh, a conversation you had with Representative Rokana, uh, where you your character you quote him uh, as as basically you know the the primary issues with American foreign policy largely have to do with. Um, you know, militarism or bellicose uh, attitude and, excuse me, not just attitude, but obviously like impacts in the world. And, and you make the point that, you know, yes, of course, obviously, but the, you know, how, how do we then deal with the budget that like, it's, it kind of takes our eyes off the budget. And so I'm curious how you, I mean, this, um, you know, I believe that piece was written a couple of years ago. I'm, I'm curious mm-hmm. how you feel about uh, maybe progressive politicians, both in office and maybe just like left, political um, movements and institutions and, you know, projects uh, push, how, how is our foreign policy approach going? Um, are we hit, like addressing the right things? How, how should we uh, address American imperialism and American foreign policy in a, in a better way, more productive way? Well, I mean, uh, broadly, obviously I'm in agreement with the, you know, general, general progressive approach, which is, you know, this is a, a monstrous, Basically, we have a huge institution devoted to basically very non-productive ends and committing a lot of atrocities along the way. But I feel the progressive approach because I feel people don't take the actual business of defense seriously enough. I mean, let me go back to this, you know, what I was just talking about, the A-10, uh, this, you know, ground support troop, uh, ground support weapon that, you know, designed to protect the lives of troops and, you know, not actually kill civilians. Um, when the, the Air Force, as I mentioned at length, uh, the, the Air Force is keen to get rid of it, um, for wholly irresponsible reasons. Um, and, you know, actually introduced a plan a few years ago to, so to do, to, they were going to phase it out. And the supporters of the A-10, uh, mobilized and actually got the Congress, you know, recruited enough people in Congress to shoot this down. But, and I was very interested to watch this, the, a lot of Democrats, including people I talked to, a lot of, you know, people on the leftward end said, well, I don't know. I mean, this is a weapons system so awful. Even the Pentagon wants to get rid of it. And therefore, you know, you know, it was just a weapon system. We could get rid of one more weapon system. That's fine. Um, Without thinking through what this was all about and so forth, and um, and I, you know, I wish to remember some arguing with people um, that they should really, you know, if they want to, if you want to advance the progressive agenda, um, you should really sort of take much more interest in the way the military actually operates. And actually, I mean, I, <coughs> being um, hubristic about it, sort of look at the arguments I I make in the book. I mean, you don't have to take them from me, but you know, this is this is the point. This is what it's all about. This is how it works. And I don't think you're going to make too much of a dent until you start doing that. I mean, let me say something further about the the A10 um, discussion, which was actually the protecting the A10 got a lot of support on the right. I mean, on the right, they you know, there's a whole segment of the right, which is 
isolationist. I mean, basically, a sort of strand of libertarian or isolationism that goes back to um, Taft or you know to the very healthy <laughs> instincts that were prevalent in the early in the thirties, um, and were sort of basically reignited briefly after World War II, and then were then suppressed really uh, by the around the turn of the middle of the century. And so, I mean, that's, you know, they, they talk, you can talk to them and you can say, listen, you know, if you want to talk about um, getting out of, you know, the forever wars, they were very vociferous about it. Um, and um, I mean, I some people know people who in, in the military and out of it and associated with it, whose political opinions about, about most things would sort of make your hair stand on end. But, you know, you have to agree with their views on our imperial adventures. Um and then, you know, a lot of agreement there. And I think there's much very profitable uh, minds to be, veins to be mined by progressives in that area. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for uh, being so generous with your time and, and speaking to us about uh, your work, uh, your book and uh, foreign policy. Everyone, please check out Andrew's latest book, The Spoils of War, Power, Profit and the American War Machine. Andrew, thank you again. I hope you'll come back soon. Hey, thank you. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Have a good one. All right. Well, Hale, you are yeah. uh, jack of all trades, producing in real time, participating in the content in real time. Good job today. Yeah, you know, I like to give Nando shit and say, your job's not that hard. I could do it. Um, and <laughs> uh, here to confirm, yeah, his job is not that hard. And, you know, he should quit his whining. Um <laughs> So typically, this is when I come on screen to do super chats. So if people have questions, we got like 10 minutes, we can run through a couple things. Um, I don't know what else you want to hear from us today, but we can answer any question, whether it's on what we said earlier or uh, something else. Um, but, you know, my only rule is like, just, you know, should be a good question. Don't don't give us crap. <laughs> just like, it's, it's more of, it's a quality principle of, you know, uh, we we want to give you good answers, so give us give us something good to work with. Yep. Um, starting with a very good question, uh, I saw Charlie in the background earlier. Where does he fall on the political spectrum? Socialism, capitalism, anarchism, totalitarianism. Et oh my gosh! You guys can see him probably in the wide shot. Go to the wide shot. Yeah. Aw, he's back there laying down. He's not feeling so well. He uh, <laughs> he threw up on my bed uh, right before the show, which. <laughs> I did not like, but anyway, um, Charlie is, uh, you know, he stays away from politics and I like that. Let's not, uh, let's not corrupt him with a political identity of any sort. I like, I like that. He's like one part of my life. That's apolitical. So, you know, I know it sounds like you have to canvas your dog a little more, (laughs) you know, I need to socialize my dog a lot more because he's He's always very skeptical. He he doesn't really like other dogs unless they're tiny, white, fluffy dogs. Like those are his favorite. Mm. I don't know why. But um, and when it comes to people, he's super skeptical for a while. But once he gets used to you, he he'll be obsessed. Like mm-hmm. he loves my um good friend and colleague, John Idarola. John took care of Charlie many times uh early on uh and so but once like he he gets used to you he's like the sweetest most affectionate dog but mm-hmm. if he doesn't know you he thinks that you're a threat to me so he's not so nice <laughs> yeah he's on a guard duty dog dog yeah. guard duty whatever 
Um, have you seen, there's like the meme where it's uh, like my dog when uh, I have food and it's like the dog with like decked out in like communist gear. And then <laughs> it's like my dog when he has food and then like, it's like a libertarian with the don't cut on me flag. <laughs> I haven't seen that, but that's hilarious. You got to send that to me. Yeah. Um, there was another super chat from earlier that uh, I just want to make sure I didn't miss um, from Lee, uh, who I believe this was right at the beginning of the show. She had written, in my experience, and I have a lot, uh, the union is strongest after notice given and before strike begins. Uh, so good note to, I, I don't remember exactly the context of what we were saying, but I guess just thinking about um, the John Deere workers and uh, you know the uphill battle that they're going to be, that they're undertaking right now, uh, you know, fighting for their demands. Um, so uh, I'm just looking for any more questions that you guys have. Um, the uh, I've been, I've been reading the Andrew Coburn book and uh, I know like there's a lot of, okay. The behind the curtain is that like, we, we talk a lot about the Verso books and people should buy Verso, but half of my books on my bookshelf are probably Verso books, but um, do I own every book that we've ever promoted? Eh, maybe not, but, uh, the Coburn book is, is good. And I think it's, um, he does provide a lot of it is it's very readable and kind of in the same style that he was just speaking in that it's a lot of kind of, um, uh, explaining through illustration or through example. And because he, he's a journalist, so it's, um, he, you know, you get a lot and you understand a lot through kind of, uh, working through kind of the, the concrete information. So, um, yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, I love like how he highlights specific examples of military waste, right. Of, mm -hmm. uh, certain weapons, certain aircraft that's developed for the military and just like, just doesn't even work is super faulty, but the whole point isn't to increase, uh, military capability or national security. It's just, all about like funneling more money, redistributing wealth from, you know, ordinary people, uh, workers to uh, incredibly lucrative uh, defense contractors. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's a, it's a really good book. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, speaking of books, let's keep it. We'll do a little finish. Uh, we'll do a little more book talk. Uh, LJ says, what's weekends reading at the moment? Oh God, that's honestly, I've been, ever since I got back from my trip uh, and the whole debate thing with Ben, I've been kind of playing catch up. So I'm not reading anything at the moment. The last book I read was The Entrepreneurial State. Um, and it talks about uh, the amount of money that taxpayers in the US spend on research and development for all sorts of things, pharmaceutical drugs, technological advances, those kinds of things. And um the book is not making a case against funding research and development. If anything, it's making a case uh, regarding the importance of the state in engaging in that type of investment because private industry, private investors are not going to take the risk necessary to do um, those investments, right? So uh, the internet is a really good example of that. Uh, when it came to Tesla, Tesla wasn't, the seed money for, for Tesla didn't come from private investors. It came from us, the US taxpayers. Um, and so the argument here is, you know, A, it's, it's a good thing, but also we as the funders of this research and development um, certainly 
deserve a lot more in return. Uh, certainly a lot more than we've been getting uh, from, you know, we should reap the benefits of it, not get price gouged by pharmaceutical companies and things like that. So it, it was a really good book. Um, but yeah, I, I'm actually looking for something to read right now. But yeah, she also I, does, yeah, go doesn't ahead. she also she makes the point that it's like, like of like the 10 major technologies that go into like an iPhone, it's all publicly yeah. developed. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So it's not only I, not only do we like, you know, get like the scraps, like the benefit scraps from, from this, you know, like, you know, we, yes, we get the products at the end fine, but like we have to pay like a large price for our iPhones and whatever, but like we already paid for it. It's like publicly right. funded, like, there's no, there's, I mean, I'm not, I don't know if like we, if there's a world where, you know, the iPhone is free. I don't know. I would like to believe maybe there is, but it should be as cheap as it possibly can be. Cause like we already paid for it. Like we don't like the problem is that there's like these people that get in the middle that are like, yeah, we're going to make profit off of this. And, and uh, so that's like, that's the problem. It's like, you know, and the, the whole like right wing, like you're saying, I mean, the whole right wing argument about like the, the, public sector can't like innovate or whatever is just like empirically bullshit. It's, it is. You, it is. We actually spur quite a bit of innovation <laughs> through public investment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as far as what I'm reading, um, if you can't tell from my segment, it's a lot of like Sweden social democracy stuff. Um, so I, I've referenced it in the, um, in the segment a few times, but like, this is like an old, book from 78 uh by walter corpy um and uh i don't know if i'm gonna finish it uh just because it's like very long and part of it's because like i'm actually part of this is actually i'm in a class so um the next book that we're supposed to be reading is actually so this is really what i've been starting on it's um now the limits of social democracy so i gave you all of the the encouraging you know how do they do it how is it so successful and um it is also the case that uh it didn't last in the form that it did so it's important to try to understand both like why it was so great and why it worked for when it worked and then trying to understand ultimately why we don't still have it today um and does that when we're looking to the future when we think of okay we want to transform society for the better do we you know how how closely do we stick to the sweden model probably it's you know, part of one of these things that it's, it's just not something you can just like automatically replicate because you know there's very specific historical contingencies um about the the path of democratization the path of industrialization um of you know the the fact that they started off um way more heavily in industrial unionism versus um much more narrow craft unionism um and so and also like we're I think I've said this before that like we're trying to build something called social democracy in a moment, like after there's already been an attempt at social democracy. And so it's different than starting from, you know, from nowhere and saying, well, wouldn't it be nice if like we had a better society? We at one point did have attempts at a better society to the benefit of working people. And um, those attempts, uh, whether on their own terms or because they were destroyed actively, um, it's probably more of the latter, but, um, definitely. To, yeah. I mean, it's something, but it's something to, to like, uh, try to understand and unpack, like, why is it that, like, why is it that the system didn't last, um, on, you know, on its own terms as well. And, uh, and now we're trying to do it again. And so, you know, 
how much do we pick up from the past? How much, how much of it is started from square one? Um, I think at the very least, you should at least know what happened in the past. So you know whether or not you should start from square one. So um, that's, I'm reading about Sweden and so should you. Oh, disclaimer. Um, <laughs> All right, we got in- one more. Do people have one more in you? One more question for us? I'm, I'm looking. Um, oh, okay. There was one more uh, super chat from earlier. Uh, which I don't know how true this is, um, but Nando famously <gasps> hates Halloween. She does? How do you oh feel about God. this sacred I, tradition? <laughs> I didn't think that I could like Nando more, but uh, <laughs> thank you, Champagne. Uh, I I now like Nando even more than I did before. I don't hate Halloween. I just don't really care for it. Like people get super excited about it, but like we're adults, right? Like what what's what's exciting about? It? Okay, parties maybe. I don't really like dressing up. I don't like spending money on a costume, so I never do. Um, I I really love like my favorite holiday is even though like it comes from a really terrible thing. I, I love the like whitewashed version of Thanksgiving, right? Like, so if you don't think about what, what Thanksgiving is supposed to, you know, reference, I just love the idea of getting together and sharing a meal with friends and family. So that's, that's definitely my favorite holiday. Um, but I already have my Christmas tree up because <laughs> I love Christmas decorations. Like I love it so much. I get a lot of joy out of it. It makes me feel cozy and happy. So I'm not one of those people who leaves the tree up like well into the year I take it down within the first week of the new year. And I decided like, why don't I just put it up early this year so I can get more out of it. So it's up. When did you put it up? Last weekend. Okay. So like, yeah, <laughs> like mid October. October. Yeah. <laughs> like who cares? Like what, who, who's going to judge me? And if yeah. they do, who gives a damn? If I like it, I'm going to do it. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Um, I like Halloween. I'm not like, I'm not someone who is like crazy about the celebration that I just, I just haven't, you know, it just doesn't end up being the case. Um, like I'll, in the last few years, I'll typically end up uh, with like a small group of friends or something. And there's, there's a lot of like bigger, you know, like there's like a parade that happens in New York. I've actually never been to it, um, which I don't know if it's happening this year, but uh, cause we're still in a pandemic, I guess. Um I don't know. I, my attitude on these things is just that like, if most people, especially like working people like these things, then they bring a little bit of joy and relief to their life in the same way that like Thanksgiving does for a different reason. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's like everyone could use more holidays and like inevitably they're going to be like themed and like, so it's, it's good. I like the, what I, you know, what I really disdain is kind of like what you were highlighting a second ago about like the people that are like well don't you know that thanksgiving is about like colonialism yeah it's like yeah of course yeah no there's a lot of bad things in the past like you know and like same thing with halloween where like people just get like way too crazy about a costume where it's like yeah it's not you it's someone else it's something else like that's the fun of it and like yeah don't don't be like a bigot sure like you know probably not a good idea to do blackface yeah just just my two cents but at the same time like it's also it's a costume it's not politics it's not like it's not a statement about like your morals or something just like 
everyone should calm down a little bit and let people enjoy their their holidays and like whatever i mean it's mostly it's mostly like middle class media people that are like shrieking and and like and think tank or think pieces or whatever about like all these problematic people you know on halloween that are you know, don't be just don't be a dick just don't don't do like a really awful obviously bad thing but also like it's fine you can you can dress up it's fun to dress yeah. up and like don't don't let the middle class media pieces get to you that's that's my advice i'm not going to be any more specific because i don't yeah. I'm like yeah don't i'm just so don't, get, don't go there tiptoeing <laughs> on, on like cancellation right there but <laughs> i but i get i get what you mean like the constant like nitpicking and judgment and it's like just there's, yeah there's, do you know how many people are homeless in this country oh my we don't God. have well, a healthcare I, system like there's yeah. like real problems don't why are we fighting over like this these stupid fucking things so I'm going to, um, right after this, I got to go do this debate that I agreed to do with some Hilton guy. I don't know, but some right-wing guy who, whatever, wants to debate uh, vaccine mandates. And it's not that, like, I just think the debate about vaccine mandates, and this is, the, like, the main point I'm going to make, uh, it, it, it's not even about something substantive at this point. It's just like one of like, I, I don't I don't care at this point. Like, I don't care about like hurt feelings on the right. I don't care about like the manufactured culture war associated with it. Like there are very real issues in the world, very real issues here in this country. And I just feel like at this point, especially in regards to vaccine mandates or mask mandates or anything related to the pandemic, it's just another like effort to deflect or distract from those real problems mm -hmm. to discuss. Most people agree with the vaccine mandate. Like I just, it's, it shouldn't even be a debate at this point. Yeah. And it just keeps going because it's the perfect endless culture war. That's like driving me nuts. And and the, the thing, and I, I won't drag this out any longer because <laughs> I'm not, I'm, but, uh, cause we got to go. Uh, but it's, I mean, the biggest thing is just that like, the problem is that like, conservatives and liberals who are fighting over this stuff over vaccines and, and mass mandates like they're all just it like the whole framework in which the conversation revolves is around personal responsibility either totally. you're a good or bad person because you individually decide to do the thing or not and it's like no that's not how that's not how you change society it's not that like oh this person who's doing something i don't want uh i'm just gonna like yell at them and tell them they're a bad person because they did or didn't do the thing that i wanted them to do no you have like you have like social institutions you have like this is like the fact that like not enough people are vaccinated in this country is joe biden's problem and mm -hmm. like the way that you would solve this i mean he is not able to solve this right now for political reasons but like the real ideal way that you would solve this is you say every single person gets two thousand dollars by showing your first vaccine dose mm -hmm. that's it everyone will be done in a month all like the people who have like built their identity around like not having not being vaccinated would be like yeah i'd, I'd take two thousand over that Totally. Like, I mean, look at the uh, I mean, it, it was so overblown how um, vaccine mandates by companies uh, was going to lead to like mass firings. And, and then it ended up that that wasn't the case at all. Right. That most people ended up getting the vaccine um, if their job required them to do it. Now, I, I agree with you. A much better solution would have been to just incentivize people to get vaccinated through the federal government, through um, like a, a financial incentive. Right. But 
when push comes to shove, when there's actual money on the line and you have to choose between something you've chosen to, you know, become an identity issue, you're going to go where the money is, right? Because, yeah. yeah. So you're right about that. I agree. Yeah. Just so that's 101 social policy. You know, you want someone to do someone, give them an incentive or a, a punishment at like at the structural level. Say like, yeah, this is how this is, you know, people people like incentives give people incentives like people are good they'll choose the incentive that's that's my my feeling stop everyone should stop fucking moralizing against everyone else that's i don't know where i I, somehow we ended here but yeah don't, don't be mean on halloween and like chill a little bit focus on the real things all right. That was a fun show. Kale, thank you for stepping in, Fernando. Uh, I loved your segment. That was awesome. And everyone, thanks for watching and supporting. Um, please uh, share clips of this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Jacobin Mag. And uh, make sure you're subscribed to Jacobin Magazine if you aren't already. We love you guys. Uh, any final words from you, Kale, before we wrap? Nope. See you next week. Thanks, everyone. Awesome. Thank you, everyone. Have a good one. Bye. Thank you.